This time we have an eminent Muslim scholar from the Middle East is Professor Muhammad Haj Yusuf. He's actually a physicist, so that should make it interesting. We will get a perspective not only of a Muslim scholar or an Arab scholar, but also someone. He is Professor of Physics at um, in United Arab Emirate. Uh, that's University of United Arab Emirate. Welcome to WBI, Professor Yusuf. Hi, welcome. How are you? Fine, sir. Good. Um, can you speak a little louder? I think your connection is probably not the optimal. I started out okay. yesterday. I, yeah, if you heard, we had uh, Professor uh, Chitik yesterday, who is also going to be uh, a speaker at this conference that you are speaking on in November at Riverside Church on on the Sufi tradition. I asked him two questions, and I will uh, begin uh, our conversation with the same question. What is the Sufi tradition? Who is a Sufi? Yes. Okay, so, um, well, a Sufi is a person who tries to seek uh, God and try to uh, unite with him in a way so that he uh, uh, disregards his material you know, uh, existence, and he tried to be so spiritual so that he can he can feel the presence of of God, and and in order to 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 reach this stage, there are many different paths that we call the Sufi paths or the Sufi traditions. There are many uh, Sufi tariqa or or ways to do this. One of them is uh, the tariqa that Muhyiddin uh, uh, al-Arabi uh, has done, and. Uh, he is one of the main uh, Sufis in, in this way. What is the origin of this tradition? Historically, um, when does the, uh, what does the word Sufi mean? What is the origin of this word? And when does it appear first in the Arabic literature? Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, uh, in, in Arabic, the word Sufi is, uh, can be connected to different roots. Some, some of them connected connect to uh, the, the word uh, Safa, which means to purify, to purify oneself uh, uh, from, as I said, from uh, his material attachments and unite with the spiritual uh, world. And uh, it has other meanings as well, but I mean, this, uh, this word uh, uh, actually is new to uh, Islamic uh, traditions because in, in early Islam, this word was not uh, so much used, just like any other. Uh, you know, uh, other uh, sections of, of Islamic science, for example, fiqh uh, uh, and, and hadith, these are other words also were not known in early Islam, but uh, as things developed in the first three centuries and Islam spread in, in, in different countries, so uh, there came uh, different uh, traditions, and one of them is uh, this uh, Sufi, Sufism, and of course, uh, the Sufis, as I said, they they uh, uh, try to seek uh, the, the truth from behind uh, different uh, verses in Quran and and Hadith traditions, and they uh, try to, uh, to by by attaching themselves to the spiritual uh, world and by by connecting themselves to the spiritual world, they try to. Uh, 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 you know, they they gain some vision, and they uh, uh, speak about their uh, views, 
and they express their, their you know, their taste. They, they learn not through thinking and, and uh, uh, studying, but they learn through uh, vision. So it's like, uh, you know, it's spiritual vision, and they call this kind of science uh, the, the science of unveiling. So they unveil the, uh, uh, um, the truth about things, the truth about the cosmos, and so on, and they try to speak this out in, in their different books. So it would be fair to say that in the in the truest meaning of this word, Prophet Muhammad would be seen as the first Sufi. Would you agree with that? Well, of course, yes. yes. I mean, maybe not everybody agrees, but of course, because uh, he he was not called a Sufi, but he uh, he was a Sufi in, in in the meaning that he actually behaved like uh, because he was always seeking, you know, seeking to. To, to uh, be always connected with God and disconnected from the material world in a way that uh, you know He gives more priority to everything higher and and uh, you know uh, spiritual. I'm from Pakistan and uh, uh, our uh, the best known poets in India and Pakistan, Ghalib, for example, <coughs> were under heavy Persian influence. So the general sense in, the, in that subcontinent is that Iran has had a disproportionate influence on this tradition, and some people trace the origin of this tradition uh, from Iran. A comment, please. Well, uh, well, I must say that Sufism is not uh, something that Islam has invented, because it's something that was known in, in almost all other religions. It's uh, whenever there is a religion, there is some group called Sufis. Maybe it's called the other name, but they, be, they are Sufis in a way. So they actually uh, always were, you know, uh, behaving like what, what I described, you know, uh, trying to detach themselves from their material uh, world and, and seeking the spiritual always. So now, uh, when Islam spread in these countries, in, in Persia and the uh, eastern part of uh, Asia. Uh, there were maybe other people from other, from original uh, religions, from, from the religions of that area, uh, who uh, liked this because, you know, they, they had this tradition in, the, in their original uh, religion somehow, and therefore when they saw uh, the teachings of Islam that they are close to what they know, so they followed Islam, uh, but, but they, they took this uh, special bath and they, they liked uh, the, you know, the, the, the meanings of the different verses in Quran that, uh, uh, that are related to what they already know of their previous traditions. So actually they, they strengthened this, uh, uh, this bath of Sufism, but it doesn't mean that actually they bought they brought it all new to, to Islam. It was actually, maybe they, they knew it before, somehow in, in their original religions, but they uh, put it in an Islamic way. In the Western literature on the Sufi tradition, there's often focus on three stages, and the first one would be ecstasy, uh, supposedly there's an image that Sufis go into, they go into a dance and uh, dervishes and then they go into trance. In fact, some people use the word spiritual drunkards for this. 
And the second step would be, uh, I'm just relating to you what uh, much of Western literature on the Sufi tradition tries to break it up. Second one would be Gnostic or so-called intellectual Sufis. And the third one then comes to the issue of love. Now, it would seem to me, listening to you, as well as to Professor Chittak yesterday, that Sufis are not so much into intellect, they seem to be more into vision and experience and direct linkage with the with God or with higher beings. So uh, inform us on this subject, please. Is this a, a valid way of looking at this, trying to parse out Sufi tradition into three parts, ecstasy, Gnostic Sufism, and love? Well, I mean, uh, yes, of course, I mean, the... The, what Ibn Arabi says, he says that uh, the intellect is one of the main uh, obstacles in the way because actually to use your intellect means that you always reflect on material things. This is the common way of using our intellect. I mean, we, we see things around us and we think of them which is true, which one is, is false, and we try to make uh, opinions. So all these things are actually distracting us uh, from uh, seeking the, the right path. In order to be uh, seeking the right path, you have to uh, use your intellect, but not in that way. You have to use it as reflecting on what comes to you from God, not not from what comes to you from from what you see and from you hear uh, from what you hear in in, in the uh, material world. So uh, the intellect actually has two sides. One that is always looking at at the cosmos, and one that is always looking at, at God. So if it's always looking at the cosmos, then it's actually not seeing what comes to it from God. And this, this is what the Sufi don't like. So in order to, to, uh, uh, um, to, to get rid of this, they try to go into seclusion and try to retreat in some place and reflect in, into their inner uh, self and and try to listen to the voice of God in, in, in uh, themselves. So once they uh, uh, hear or, or, or see something, they try to keep with it and not, not to uh, distract themselves in, in, in any other way. And, uh, of course, as they practice this, they uh, had, uh, they, they uh, uh, well, they, I mean, they uh, have uh, a connection. They are now connected with the spiritual world, and they... Uh, they take all their uh, visions and learnings from this material world. Now, of course, uh, practically there are different ways to, to do this. Uh, for example, I said, I mentioned seclusion and retreat, but this is one, one of the methods. The other method is to uh, always commemorate God and mention God's name. And actually, this is the original uh, method and, and better way because sometimes, you know, going into retreat, uh, well, I mean, sometimes it... Uh, the human is uh, sometimes uh, subjected to other, maybe uh, uh, other effects from, you know, the world is full of uh, the, the, the unseen creatures like jinn and, and angels, and sometimes he doesn't really, um, you know, he, he doesn't find a, a way out of all the confusing visions that he may go through. So in order to, to be on the right path, he has to always, be remembering God, and of course he has to be guided by a special uh, master, a Sufi master that that has to be always connected with him. He has to tell him what what he sees, 
and of course he has always to be uh, you know in uh, memorizing and and uh, always remembering him and and therefore he guides him through the way so the the the, the there are, of course, hundreds of, of uh, different Sufi tariqas. Not, not all of them actually uh, are right or 100% right. Some of them actually, you know, they lead to confusing things. So, my guest is Professor Muhammad Haj Yusuf. He is on the faculty of the Department of Physics, University of um, United Arab Emirates. We are privileged to have him uh, on the phone from the Middle East. Um, uh, let me explore this subject a little bit more. Um, I want to give you an example, and then I would like to... You mentioned the word confusion towards the end of uh, your comments in the last segment. There's a well-known story um, that uh, Rumi, who is one of the well-known, and then later on we'll talk about uh, Ibn Arabi, and Rumi accepted um, uh, Sufi Shemas as his mentor, and the story that appears um, uh, in Eastern as well as in the Western literature is the first time they met, Rumi, of course, was a well renowned teacher at that time, and he was holding a class with all of the students, and there this beggar comes in, and he looks at um, uh, a sh- shelves of books in the classroom, and he says, what um, are those? And Rumi supposedly said, you wouldn't understand that, and at that time, there was a fire which burned down the books, and uh, Rumi uh, became frightened, and he asked uh, Shamas, who was dressed like a beggar, what was that? And Shamas' prompt reply was, nor would you understand that. Now, here's my um, question about this. Uh, one possibility is that this, uh, there's a profound symbolism in this. The second possibility is to believe that this actually happened. And if it happened, there's a possibility that this was some sort of a sleight of hand. Or the third option would be that this indeed was divine intervention. So tell us, uh, uh, since you brought up the subject of a confusing aspect of the Sufi tradition, going back to this, uh, what is your own view that this was a symbolic story that Rumi told, or this is actually what happened physically, and if it happened, was it a sleight of hand, or was it divine intervention? Well, uh, actually, I haven't heard this story because, um, you know, most of the uh, uh, stories about, uh, most of the books about Rumi were in um, were not in Arabic, and actually most of my reading is about it in Arabic. So, but in general, I mean, uh, yes, you know, Sufis always see things as uh, always intervention from God because he, they see that God is always uh, acting in, in, the, in the cosmos. Even when you see, uh, for example, things coming natural from any uh, uh, any other phenomena. Uh, for example, even when you speak, actually, they 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 stress that actually it's not you who is moving uh, your lips and and uh, uttering the, the, the voice. Actually, God is always doing everything uh, through you. So, in the end, everything is, uh, you know, uh, in, done by God. Now, you are a physicist, so um, from a scientific perspective, you are very comfortable with this idea that this indeed was divine intervention. Well, I mean, this is uh, what I try to show in uh, some publications, and actually, yes, there is there is a way to uh, connect 
with divine actions, uh, with with what we see on the uh, physical world. Because according to Ibn Arabi, uh, he believes that uh, all the forms, all, all the uh, things that happen in 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 our world, are actually just uh, imagination or a kind of illusion that we see. Uh, all this motion, all these objects that move around us, they actually don't have a real physical uh, uh, entity, but they are actually forms of one single reality that, that only can be described as having real existence. And this is called what he called is, uh, the single monad. So uh, uh, he says that this single monad is uh, actually always, uh, you know, displaying itself in different ways so quickly and so fastly so that it's, it's going through all the states of the cosmos once and again. And in, in doing this, he actually uh, uh, shows us, or we see uh, things, uh, uh, a variety of things, and these things are moving, and, and therefore we see this uh, whole world. But in reality, all these things or all these forms are uh, uh, different forms of one single reality that is a single monad, and therefore... Uh, this single monad is actually uh, uh, controlled by God, and therefore, by by by, by doing this, he he uh, connects this unity of God and uh, with with this uh, with, with the multiplicity of the world that we see. And of course, the way to to make this connection is not so easy. It's a very complicated theory, but he uh, explains it, and he. Uh, uh, well, I mean, he uh, has to explain in, in doing this, he has to explain how this multiplicity, uh, uh, you know, um, emerged out of this unity, and therefore uh, here comes uh, the important role of time, because it's true that we see different things and move, uh, motion always, but uh, if you stop the world at any instance, there is only this single monad doing one single job at a time, and therefore by running this uh, film, if you like to call it, by running it, you see this different uh, motion. So in the end, all what all the images that we see are actually only uh, images of one single reality, and this single reality is the, the, the only thing that has or that can be described uh, as having real existence. So this single reality is a single monad, and it's connected with God directly. So at the end, everything is is done by God. We are at the mid-hour and we'll take a quick station ID. Please stay with said that if you do what you've always done, you're going to get what you've always got. Here's a chance to learn new ways to be with people and to be with yourself as well. Tune into The Positive Mind, Tuesdays, Wednesdays, and Thursdays at 1 p.m. on WBAI 99.5. 
It's knowledge from the heart, my friends. Welcome back to Science, Health and Healing. This week at Science, Health and Healing, we are learning about the Sufi tradition. Yesterday we had Professor William Chittick. Today we have Professor Muhammad Haj Yusuf. He is uh, right now in the Middle East. He is on the faculty of uh, the Department of Physics at University of United Arab Emirates. He is going to be speaking at this important conference at Riverside Church in November I think it's November 5 and 6, um, and uh, I'll give you the number, uh, and I hope that many of you will take time to attend this conference. Uh, for registration, the number is 212-219-2527. Again, 212-219-2527, extension 2. Professor Yusuf, uh, before the uh, the mid-break, we were talking about uh, I want to explore uh, one or two things with you. Uh, one would be the question of, um, before we go to Ibn Arabi, who is the subject, the Sufi Ibn Arabi, um, tell us about um, the role of uh, Sufi women uh, in the tradition of Sufism in the Islamic world. Yes, well, yeah, of course, I mean... Uh there were there were many uh, Sufis women, uh, in, for example, Rabi al Adawiya, she is a famous figure, and uh, even Ibn Arabi himself has uh, different uh, uh, women uh, as his teachers, and and also has different women uh, as students. He mentioned, for example, uh, Shams Umm al Fuqara, Shams or or uh, the son, he calls it the son, the, the mother of of uh, uh, the needs. Uh, so. Uh, and also others. So actually, uh, Sufism is not uh, something that is only for men. It's, of course, for women as well. And there is no difference you, one, if you uh, want to seek, uh, uh, you know, seek God and seek these spiritual uh, uh, meanings. It's uh, both for men and women. And actually, even for women, maybe it will be, uh, you know, more close because Normally, you know, by by nature, woman is uh, more spiritual and more emotional, and uh, there has been, you know, many many Sufi women in Sufi traditions. Even today, actually, there are many. I know in Syria, for example, there are there is an Ashmadi Tariqa, and uh, uh, I know many uh, famous women who are now uh, teaching Sufism in in the Middle East and in Syria in particular. No, women, Sufi women, even in the early period, which would be the second or the third or the fourth century of the Islamic era, which would put us somewhere around 800, 900, uh, the Christian era. At that time, the Sufi women did teach men. Now, can you tell us how did it happen that now women... Uh, somebody said the other day, which has been our observation, that uh, women in Pakistan, where I'm from, uh, the, the poor women, they do not wear hijab or burqa. They are workers. Then when they progress, they start wearing this. And then finally, when they become very affluent, they stop wearing hijab or burqa. So uh, I can speak for Pakistan, but I think that is largely true of India and probably true certainly when I was in Abu, Abu Dhabi 
recently, I observed the same thing. So can you tell us, link the, th- the things together, that in the early periods of tradition, women had a very important role, and they did teach uh, the tradition to men. And then now the things have so deteriorated that um, the women who really have to work on the fields or wherever the other small jobs, they cannot afford to wear burqa and hijab. And then women, when they are a little bit affluent, they do that. And of course, when they become independent, economically independent, most of them relinquish. So please give us some comments on this. Well, I mean, uh, the problem in, in most of the you know, Islamic uh, countries and uh, especially in today's uh, Islam, they sometimes give, you know, more weight to spe- some to few things than other things. For example, wearing hijab is, is uh, you know, it's requested, is, is uh, uh, something that is good in Islam and uh, always it's better for the woman to, you know, uh, not uh, show the, uh, her beauty to everybody. Well, uh, but this is not the main thing. This is, in, 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 there are more important things in Islam. There are, for example, prayer, uh, uh, fasting. So if you do everything, if you do everything perfectly, and then you try to, to, to uh, also, to, for women, they try to, uh, you know, be like, uh, 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 like, uh, the early woman in Islam, they try to, uh, you know, wear hijab and uh, even uh, cover their faces, maybe. But this is uh, this is not the behavior that Islam requests from everybody, from every woman. So it depends on the situation. It depends on maybe the uh, region where they live. It depends if they are, for example, uh, in a small country that where everybody knows, uh, uh, know everybody else. Or if she goes to uh, other far uh, countries, so this is actually something that is minor. And but the problem is that in our, you know, in today's world, they give it uh, more priority and leave the more important things. The title of your talk in New York next month is Ibn Arabi view of the cosmos. So let's now move over to. Who was Ibn Arabi? What is his place in the Sufi tradition? And then you can move on to the subject of your talk here in New York, which is Ibn Arabi's view of the cosmos. So please tell us, who was he? Oh, that's good. Yeah. Okay. So uh, I mean, Ibn Arabi is very, very well known figure in, in uh, Islamic Sufism and uh, philosophy. He, he was uh, an uh, Andalusian uh, scholar who lived in uh, the 5th and 6th century uh, uh, AH, that's uh, about the 12th century uh, AD. So he, he uh, lived in uh, in Andalusia and moved around in, in the west, uh, like Morocco and Algeria, and then he traveled to to the east where he performed the, the pilgrimage in, uh, in Mecca, and then he settled in, in, in the Middle East, uh, in Syria and part of Turkey and, and uh, also Iraq. And he, he, at the end, he settled finally in Damascus uh, until he, he died in uh, the year 638 uh, AH. So uh, during his life, he wrote so many books. He wrote uh, more than 400 books. Uh, the most famous of them is Al-Fatuhati Makkiyah. This is a, a very 
large uh, four volumes now printed in four volumes, but originally it's actually uh, 37 volumes. And uh, also he has other uh, important books as well, like Fusus al-Hikam. So uh, what what is important about Ibn Arabi is that he he is so original in everything that he says. All his books were uh, uh, original in all the thoughts in, in the book. Uh, he he never uh, he seldom caught anybody else, but he always uh, uh, bring new things in every line. You find the new information. So uh, I when I, I I read about him and and I read through his books, I found that he actually uh, has a very uh, uh, profound view of, of the cosmos, especially the view of time. And uh, uh, being a physicist myself, I uh, uh, like this very much because I discovered that, you know, uh, he, he knew a lot of information that we are coming to know even in today's uh, uh, revolutionary scientific series. So uh, I was so amazed at the amount of information that he has about the cosmos and physics and matter, all these things. So, uh, Can you give us an example why, which might, uh, for non-physicists uh, in our listenership, mostly they are non-physicists, can you give us a, a, an example to illustrate this point of view of his insights into some cosmological phenomenon that astrophysicists would relate to, not astrologists, but astrophysicists would relate to? Yes, yeah. well, yeah, sure, sure. I mean, one of them main uh, concepts or, or, or phenomena in physics is, uh, uh, or in astrophysics is the uh, uh, motion of stars. I mean, uh, in early cosmology, uh, everybody believed that uh, stars were fixed. Only the, the, only the, the planets were moving in, in the sky as we normally see in, when we look at the sky. And they believed, everybody believed that the stars were, were completely fixed, some points fixed in the sky, and nobody knew their reality. And this point of view was so ancient, and it continued until even Einstein's time. And he, when, when Einstein, for example, uh, tried to formulate his uh, uh, theory of relativity, he was so sure that the stars were fixed in the beginning. And uh, he tried to change the formula that he was dealing with in order to uh, uh, prove that the stars were fixed. Later on, he discovered that the stars were not fixed at all, and... He changed back his formula, and now it's everybody knows that the stars are moving in a, what we call the uh, proper motion. So this was actually only recently known, only in 1920 uh, or 25, 27, I think. So uh, Ibn Arabi actually was very clear about this. He he even gave uh, uh, proofs and and explanations why we the stars uh, as fixed, but they are in reality moving, and he actually even gave, gave numbers to their speed, and he, he said that the fastest star of them uh, uh, cuts uh, uh, cut every degree in, in the celestial sphere in 100 years, and therefore if you calculate it, it will, it will be uh, 300 uh, or 30, 360 degrees by 100 to be 36,000 uh, years. So if you calculate this and compare it to what we know, the numbers that we know now, it's actually uh, correct. So this is one good example. That's amazing. Um, did, uh, did Copernicus know about uh, Ibn Arabi's work? Is there any evidence there historically? 
Well, n- no, there is no direct uh, link, but I mean, it's known that Kobanikos was, you know, the one who uh, spoke about uh, 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 that the Earth uh, was not actually the, the center of the universe, as was known before, and he, uh, uh, you know, brought a heliocentric view of the of the uh, uh, cosmos or the, the world as was known before. I mean, the, the, the solar system, what we know now as the solar system. He was actually the first to say that the sun is in the center of the uh, solar system. But actually, I, I showed that his view actually was was uh, uh, told by Ibn Arabi even uh, more than 400 years before Copernicus, and he, he was clear also about this point. Ibn Arabi's uh, view of the solar system actually was heliocentric rather than uh, geocentric, as was known before Copernicus. Let me give my listeners just a little distraction. They might appreciate this. Um, in the Western literature, uh, the English surgeon William Harvey is credited to, for discovering um, blood circulation uh, through the heart and through the rest of the body. And in reality, Ibn Nafis did that almost uh, 700 years before that. So are there other examples that come to you where there's a common misconception and historically we are not accurate when we accredit some Western workers when in reality the Arabs had clearly documented those observations? Well, I mean, the example that I mentioned about the motion of stars is one example, and actually there is another example about Ibn Arabi because I am actually really specialized about Ibn Arabi. So uh, uh, there is even uh, more important example that Ibn Arabi had actually a very clear idea about the, the vast uh, uh, depths or, or uh, the spacious universe, not only uh, the universe as a solar system, because you know the, the stars and the distance to stars were only discovered very recently in in 1920s, and nobody before that nobody knew that there are galaxies and that galaxies are uh, uh, so huge and has so many uh, billions of, of stars. Now Ibn Arabi actually the, the, his view of the cosmos. Uh, is very clear that he knows about uh, uh, galaxies and he knows the distance to, to galaxies. For example, he says clearly that, uh, uh, um, of course, I cannot now, uh, uh, you know, explain everything in, de- in details, but I have to summarize. Uh, he speaks about, for example, the, the local sphere of, of uh, 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 what he calls, uh, you know, the, the, the local planets. And then he says that this sphere, if you compare it to the uh, higher sphere, which is the, the sphere of the chair or the pedestal that he calls, actually, which is uh, uh, comparing to our uh, uh, modern uh, view is the galaxy. So if you compare the solar system to the galaxy, uh, it will be like a, a ring in a vast desert. So if you, if you look at this comparison, a ring in a vast desert. So it's like uh, a small... Uh, ring in a, in a spacious uh, space. And this is actually what we now know. If you compare the solar system to the galaxy, it will be very, very, very small, just like a ring in a vast desert. And again, he says, if you compare this uh, uh, pedestal to the uh, throne, what he calls the throne, and this is like comparing the galaxy to the whole world, again, it will be like a ring to uh, comparing to uh, a vast desert. So this view actually was uh, very, uh, um, I mean, no 
nobody <laughs> could believe this at that time, but now we, we know that the, the, the cosmos is in this way. So this was actually discovered only quite recently. In the scientific work, usually there is a lot of work done in a particular field which primes a person for that eureka moment or aha moment. So, and many people have recognized this, that what we attribute as a simple aha eureka moment indeed was a culmination of um, extended serious study. So, coming back to Ibn Rabi, this notion, this idea that you just presented of his insights into uh, these uh, Milky Ways, in his literature, in his book, can you read and see that actually there is a long line of thought and experiments and reflections and then he comes into this insight as a eureka moment? Or do you think it was a straight vision or it was also an example of divine uh, revelation? It is actually the other one. Yeah, it's, it's a straight vision. He, he actually even... Uh, uh, other one you mean it was a revelation or it was an end result of a long uh, line of inquiries? No, no, no experimental, no experiment at all. He, he actually only express what he see. Let me explore something else with you. I, I am writing a book on the early history of medicine. And just for our listeners, there is an, if you Google uh, Africa, colon, the mother of medicine, punctuation is important if you're going to do some things, Google search, you will come to this article, Africa, colon, the mother of medicine. So, Professor um, Yusuf, here's my question that you you have to think about this. The pre-Nubian people, this, this precedes the earliest Judaic writing and certainly the earliest Christian or Muslim writings. And it is far before the, the ancient Indian writings or the Chinese writings. I'm not talking about some hard evidence seven, eight thousand years ago. And of course, we know from archaeology that they, um, they were into agriculture and metallurgy much further than that, 25,000. Well, here's my question. Why would the divinity withhold crucial insights from these early Africans, which were so far advanced, without digressing too much, I have no question in my mind that about the creation of conditions of healing and surgical wounds, I, I trained as a surgeon. Um, they were actually more advanced. They didn't have our scans, etc. So my question is, why would the divine power withhold for thousands of years, this central idea of the unity of God and revelation, because Africans certainly did extremely well without the Judaic or Christian or Muslim or Hindu teachings. Mm. Well, I don't know really exactly, but I mean, in the end, it's it's the way the world we live in is that we have to seek, we have to learn. So if divinity, if, if God wants, to give us everything right from the beginning, it will there will be no need to create the whole universe. I mean, the whole life is uh, like a struggle to to find the truth. So, uh, of course, one of the ways is to to seek knowledge of the truth from God. But this this method, not everybody follows this method. If if they follow this method, uh, like the method, for example, of Ibn Arabi, if they try to seek the truth from God, 
directly from him, like what he did, uh, as I uh, introduced in the beginning. I mean, if he did attach himself with uh, the material world and he looked at his inner side, inner spiritual side, then he would learn the, the truth from God and he would uh, learn, for example, the cues to things and, and uh, the true visions. But, I mean, it's like the divine wisdom that not everybody uh, do this at the same time. It's only few people do this. Few other people seek the other um, uh, experimental side. They they maybe take uh, you know there are different methods to 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 find uh, or to to learn about the truth. So not not all people follow the same way. If everybody will follow the right way from the beginning, there will be no need to uh, create the whole world, and everybody will be uh, you know correct. But the whole world is built on, you know, people are doing well, people are doing better, people are doing bad. This is the whole thing. You know, a skeptic would say that if we look around the physical world around, the Sufi idea of neglecting the intellect and seeking direct intervention by divine revelation that's not really what gave us our telephone or automobiles or really almost any technology that you can think about or even the the methods of growing crops or food for ourselves. So can you, in the closing minutes, sort of comment on this? Uh, this is a natural question that anybody would say that all our advances in the history, they have been based on the intellect and inquiry into the natural phenomenon. So please comment. Yeah, I mean, we didn't say that we we should not use intellect. But I mean, if you want to be a Sufi, if you want to, uh, oh, that's uh, a good point. That's a good point. Yeah, I mean, okay. yeah, I mean, I, I'm not saying that everybody must be a Sufi. You, know, you see, this is very important. Right. But I mean, if you want to be a Sufi, if you want to uh, uh, be connected with God, then you should not give too much weight to the material world. I mean, what at the end. What this uh, whole te- uh, technology? What 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 did it bring to to people? Maybe there are good things, of course. I mean, right now, for example, we are speaking. Maybe we are uh, more than five thousand miles away, so we could not speak. We could not do this conversation without the telephone. But at the end, if you take the whole uh, uh, technology, it also has other uh, you know other uh, bad things. For example, wars and things. So, so in the true. end. Uh, there are good things in technology and, and bad things. There are also uh, good things in, in uh, the spiritual bath of Sufism. Maybe there are also bad things because uh, if everybody was a Sufi, then who will work? <laughs> who will, who will uh, I mean, uh, you know... Who will run uh, the buses? <laughs> yeah, who will, then, who will do the other thing? Yeah. So the, the, the world is built on this variety of, you know, different... Uh, and, uh, and Professor Yusuf, we are coming to the end of the time given to us. My guest has been Professor Muhammad Haj Yusuf. He is on the faculty of the Department of Physics, University of United Arab Emirates. He is speaking in New York. I hope many of you would take time out and listen to him in person. They should be a lot more interesting. There's always uh, this uh, wonderful synergy that you listen to someone, you look at him, and then you read his work. And uh, can you give us the the name of uh, uh, your book? One of your book is called... Uh, um, you have a book out, right? 
Time and Cosmology. Ibn Arabi, Time and Cosmology. I couldn't find it actually here in Barnes and Noble. So we have about 30 seconds for your closing uh, comments, Professor Yusuf, and thank you very much for taking time out for us. Thank you very much, and I thank you for uh, you know giving me the time to speak, and uh, I hope to see you inshallah soon. Inshallah. So uh, that was Professor Muhammad Yusuf. This has been Science, Health, and Healing. And until next week, may you be gracious and graceful and generous. <laughs>